Hello and welcome to Sci Section. My name is Sarah Jafari. I'm a fourth year English major from York University, and I'll be your host for today's event. I'm also a journalist here at Sci Section. Sci Section is a radio show from McMaster University, and our goal at Sci Section is to improve scientific literacy for a broad audience. We interview scientists and researchers from all over the world and discuss a variety of applied scientific topics in hopes of engaging listeners and inspiring an interest in science. I'm excited to say that today, Sci Section has partnered with McMaster's Stem Cell Club to discuss stem cell donation and racial disparities in the registry. Stem Cell Club aims to improve the quality and quantity of membership on Canada's stem cell donor database. Their work improves the chances that patients in need of stem cell transplantation will find the one match they need to save their lives. Stem Cell Club also works to advance Canada's blood health through blood donor recruitment and by supporting the activities of Canadian Blood Services. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Warren Fingrip, who is the founder and director of Stem Cell Club. Dr. Warren Fingrip completed his medical doctorate at University of British Columbia, internal medicine residency training at University of Toronto, and then hematology fellowship training at University of British Columbia. Currently, he's a first-year fellow in adult bone marrow transplantation at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm actually so excited for this discussion because I'm an English major. I don't know anything about stem cell transplantations or anything like that. So I'd love to know a little more about like what you do and what the process is. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very uh, happy to help. So, you know, I can, so what I do as a bone marrow transplant fellow here at Canada Patients in Need, well, I can start by explaining that uh, a range of patients with blood diseases or immune or metabolic diseases need a stem cell transplantation um, as part of their therapy. Um, stem cell transplantation offers such patients the potential chance of cure for their disease where there may not be otherwise a curative therapy for their conditions. And when I'm talking about patients with blood diseases, I'm talking about patients who have leukemia, lymphoma, blood cancers, um, bone marrow failure syndromes. With a stem cell transplantation, I explain that stem cells, and I mean, I say stem cells, I mean blood stem cells specifically, are, are sort of the factories that live inside the bone marrow and produce all the different parts of our blood. The red blood cells, which carry oxygen, nutrition, the white blood cells, which are our immune system and fight off infection, and platelets, which help us to stop bleeding. And so, again, the stem cells are the factories that make all the different parts of our blood. And um, many patients have diseases where something goes awry with their bone marrow, with the stem cells, with the factories, and either they have a cancer that's sort of like, you can think of it as sort of the, the cancer, like leukemia, lymphoma, as kind of like a weed in the garden that is the bone marrow, overtaking the healthy factories, that there aren't any healthy factories anymore, just a cancer or a limited number. Or sometimes there are diseases where the factories are damaged or not working properly. So there, there may be, you know, you look at the bone marrow and there's actually a ton of factories, but they're just not making healthy blood cells or healthy immune cells. And so you have patients with certain immune deficiency syndromes as a result of that, or bone marrow failure syndromes with any chronic transfusions. And so um, for all of these different kinds of conditions, a stem cell transplant can offer a cure because how it works is that you give the patient a strong chemotherapy to destroy their diseased or not working bone marrow. Um, or and, and also the, to mop up any residual cancer uh, that they have in the case that they have cancer, or such as leukemia or lymphoma, for example. And then you give them stem cells as, a, as an infusion um, that had been collected from a matched donor. Um, and actually, those stem cells go into their bloodstream like, a, like an infusion, but they, they, they know where to go. They find their way into the bone marrow. 
and they set up shop in there and make new factories, the donor's factories, inside the, the recipient, inside the patient, making blood that's the same blood that the donor actually makes inside their bone marrow, but it's now being made inside the bone marrow of the patient. And so um, this is, again, a curative therapy for a number of diseases. Now, um, I'm not sure your initial question was sort of what I do and how, so I explained that background, but what I do here um, as a bone marrow transplant fellow uh, is I'm training uh, and learning how to care for patients both who need a stem cell transplant and who have received one before and after the process and through the journey. Um, and, you know, um, I also continue to serve as director of Stem Cell Club, which I founded back in 20, uh, 2010. So it's been, uh, 2011, excuse me. So it's been a 10 year journey. Um, uh, recruiting folks across Canada as stem cell donors um, in collaboration with the stem cell clubs across Canada. Um, that's been very meaningful too. And it's been, it's been a journey and, and uh, uh, the work is very meaningful to me. I know you already explained this a little bit, but why don't we go into more detail about what stem cell transplantation is and what stem cell donation is? Stem cell transplantation is, is used as a curative therapy to treat over 80 different diseases. And when I say stem cell transplantation, again, I specifically am referring to blood stem cell transplantation. Um, you know, there are conditions where a patient has cancer, um, you want to give them strong chemotherapy, but the chemotherapy that you want to give them is too strong that it would damage their own healthy bone marrow. So sometimes you collect those same patients' own stem cells, and then you, you freeze them, and then you give them the chemotherapy that you otherwise wouldn't be able to give, and then you follow that by giving them back their own blood stem cells to rescue them. And those, you would do this for patients who have diseases where there's nothing specifically wrong with their own stem cells, but there's something else going on in the bone marrow, such as a cancer, et cetera, um, that's not a cancer of the stem cells, but of signature blood cells or however. Um, and so there are lymphomas and other diseases, myeloma, uh, where you would do what's called an autologous stem cell transplantation using the patient's own stem cells that they donate basically to themselves just to rescue them from the chemotherapy. Um, but then there are many cases where there's a problem with the stem cells themselves, um, and that's where the disease is coming from, and so you can't do that for those patients. And so there are over 80 diseases where um, a stem cell transplant from, an, from a donor um, is needed. And so when I say you need a stem cell transplant from a donor, you have to find a match. And so how that works is that on the surface of all of the cells of our body, we have these markers, these flags, if you will, called human leukocyte antigens. And, and it's, like, it's like, how does your body know that your cells belong to you? How does your immune system know that your cells belong to you? Well, the immune system, you know, I like to explain it that, you know, when you go to the supermarket and you're buying sort of a piece of fruit, like a pear, or you're buying a cereal box, the cashier scans the barcode label on the fruit, on the cereal box, and the computer takes that information and goes, oh, I know what that is. And so too, your circulating immune system has a kind of scanner and there's a barcode label, a series of flags on the top of all of the cells of the body called the human leukocyte antigen markers or the HLA markers. And so you have these immune cells, your immune cells are going around scanning and it's like, well, this is me, that's me, that's me. And it scans a germ with something that doesn't belong. Like, well, that shouldn't be there. And the immune system starts, you know, get gearing up to attack that. Well, here's the thing with the transplant. I mean, you're getting an immune system from the donor. And you've got to make sure that the barcode system, scanning system's calibrated just right, or else the new immune system goes around and scans. And if it scans the recipient as not belonging or not what it should be, then it'll start attacking the recipient. And this is a condition called graft versus host disease. 
And that's like a long name. It's sort of the graft is the stem cells and immune cells that come from the donor and the host being the patient, the graft versus host, the, the graft, the new immune systems attacking the host. And this is a common problem post-transplant. Um, it's, it, you know, we, we routinely give strong immune suppressing medications after transplant to uh, give time for the new immune system to get to get, get used to the patient. Um, which lowers the risk of graft versus host disease, and we can slow, we can slowly taper and lower down the immune suppression over time. Eventually, getting it off in most patients um, over many months, um, giving again time for the new immune system to get used to the patient. Um, but what's really important is trying to find as good of a match as possible to facilitate that. And you know, in terms of the genetics, you know, the first thing that we do when looking for a match is we look for siblings. You know, with the genetics, you get half of your DNA from your mom and half from your dad. And so you get half of your HLA markers from your mom and half from your dad. And so just sort of like the whole genetics, you can make sort of a Punnett square or a diagram there where, you know, any sibling has a one in four chance of having a match to another sibling because you get half from your mom and half from your dad. There's sort of four different possible combinations there of how the HLA markers could end up in the, in the, in the children. And so for any two siblings, it's a 25% chance that they'll match to each other. And, and so, I mean, the majority of folks who need a stem cell transplant don't have a fully matched sibling donor. And so then a range of options are available for those patients. Um, the, the first and preferred option would be a fully matched unrelated donor. And, you know, that's, um, you know, doctors then look to First Canadian Blood Services Stem Cell Registry which is a list of over 460,000 Canadians who are willing to be donors for such patients. And then there's also a global registry that they search at the same time with over 38 million people right now registered as potential donors around the world. And you could match to anyone anywhere in the world if you're on that registry. Um, still though, you know, 38 million people sounds like a lot of people, but still actually like, um, you know, match rates right now, and we'll talk about this later in the program in more detail, but, you know, uh, for Caucasian people, 75% have a matched unrelated donor, but 25% do not. And then for non-Caucasian people, that's much, much less. And, you know, for certain demographics, such as people of Black, uh, African, Black, Caribbean ancestry, it's down to sort of 15 to 20% have a matched unrelated donor available to them. And, and part of that, there's so many reasons for that, and we'll discuss in more detail, but part of it's the lack of representation on the registry in Canada and, in the, and around the world. And, and, and um, part of it is the differences in the, um, in, the, in, the, in the genetic variability of particular ancestral groups. Um, some groups have uh, more, more numbers of combinations of the HLA markers, more, more iterations, more possible sort of numbers for each slot of that barcode label, which makes it harder for those groups to find that perfect match out there. And it doesn't help that they're not well represented on the registries to begin with. And it's heart-wrenching because, I mean, I want for patients uh, in need of a transplant to have a matched donor, um, and many do not, and particularly those from a range of non-Caucasian ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So besides the ethnicity, is there anything else that makes somebody a match to somebody who needs a stem cell transplant? It's a good question. So there's a lot of things that we look for. So we don't actually match people by ethnicity. We match them only by the HLA markers, the, the barcode labels. But it so happens that people are more likely to find a match from within their own ancestral groups. We know that ethnicity and race don't perfectly correlate with sort of genetic ancestry or heritage, um, but it's, it's weakly correlated and 
we do know that there's marked racial ethnic disparity in access to an unrelated donor for a stem cell transplant. And, and so there's a correlation there, but it's not perfect. You know, someone identifies as, as black, someone identifies as, as so even people who identify as Caucasian, you know, so if you go back far enough on their family tree, it's like, why, why are there 25% of Caucasian people not finding a match if there are so many Caucasian people on the registry on the world? Because some people identify as, as sort of white or Caucasian, but maybe if you go back on their family tree, maybe there was some, um, uh, uh, how do I put this? Uh, the connection between people of, of different ancestries back in the family tree and then introduction of unique uh, genetic markers that make such a person unique down the line. And I mean, um, it's a comment also on the increasing diversity of the world, you know, increasing globalization, people are becoming more diverse, people are, you know, um, societies are not, the ancestral groups are sort of um, uh, becoming more diverse and, and that's, uh, you know, that's wonderful. But for the patients who need a match, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there who may have uh, very unique or very uncommon combinations of HLA markers, which make the matching a lot harder for those patients. I know you kind of touched on this in the beginning, but why did you establish the stem cell club? What really triggered throughout your education or your career that made you want to start a club like this? That's a great question. Uh, I've been, in, you know, I've been involved in, in stem cell donor recruitment, uh, you know, back since I was an undergrad, actually at McMaster myself. Um, so, you know, I did my undergrad at my Bachelor of Sciences, uh, my Bachelor of Life Sciences, excuse me, at McMaster University back in 2008, 2011. Um, and actually, I was in my fraternity up at Swan Pie. Uh, and we, they were running uh, some of the first on-campus uh, donor recruitment events, like in Canada, uh, you know, it was back long ago. Um, and, you know, the first drive that I was involved in, with, I was a, a volunteer, and we signed up um, almost or just over 900 people uh, to get swabbed. I mean, this again, no one had been swabbed, no one had heard of this, uh, everyone was really excited to help, um, and it had never really been done meaningfully before on campus. Um, and then um, the following year, I got involved as, as more of a leader of the drive, um, again, with my fraternity. And so this is Alpha Epsilon Pi, um, which is still actually active at, at McMaster. And, and uh, we, we registered our drive, you know, considering the success of our previous year's drive, we registered our drive with the Guinness Book of World Records. And, and we actually broke the world record for the largest stem cell drive in the world yeah. in 24 hours. And, and, and I mean, very exciting. I'll comment a couple comments on that. We actually, there were larger drives than ours. We signed up over 1,100 people as donors in 24 hours. This is back in 2010, in November. Um, there were larger drives in the world at that time than ours, but they hadn't registered those drives with Guinness to sort of break the record. When you break a record with Guinness, you have to like announce that you're going to break it. There are rules. You got to sort of video evidence every 30 minutes, and that there's certain you know they have to, the Guinness has to be sort of uh, involved through the process um, to, to verify. And so, but so we did it, and we broke the record. And then actually, a few years later, the record fell. Some other group in Germany uh, recruited, I think it was like 3,000, which totally blew our drive out of the park. Um, but, but for a couple of years, we were in the Guinness Book of World Records at McMaster. And so I thought that was, I mean, it was a very um, intense and exciting drive. And again, we got the whole campus talking about stem cell donation. But, you know, it also got me thinking about all these patients that didn't have a match and, you know, how people had just were not aware of this concept of being a stem cell donor at all. Uh, and, and, you know, then I went to uh, start as a first year medical student in Vancouver. And, you know, I saw that, you know, I wanted to get involved. I wanted to continue the work, um, helping recruit people as donors. 
And I saw that there was a group of students that wanted to run a drive already before I arrived at, at, in Vancouver. Um, and I was like, great, I'm going to help with their drive. And, and they ran this drive and it was lovely. And it, we recruited a lot of donors. And then the student group disbanded. And the Canadian Blood Services staff that I was chatting with was like, oh, would you want to run some drives? And I was thinking, well, there's got to be a better way. You got to have, you know, there should be a sort of a, a club or a group that runs these drives regularly. Otherwise, you know, starting from scratch every single time. Um, and so I started, you know, as I said, as a medical student, uh, stem cell club chapter at University of British Columbia. And I recruited a bunch of my peers and we started running drives regularly and I started developing training materials so that I could train them to run the drives without me there or to facilitate. I mean, at University of British Columbia, the medical school campus is split into four sites at different universities across the province, University of Northern British Columbia, University of Victoria, uh, University of British Columbia, Okanagan and Kelowna. And so, you know, I started up stem cell chapters there, which was some friends of mine from my school and they were recruiting volunteers, et cetera. And I thought, you know, this model was working really well. And so then when I moved to Ontario for my internal medicine training, I started launching chapters across Ontario and then across the prairies and the Maritimes across Canada. And so now we have 27 chapters across Canada and we you know, continue to add chapters every year. Um, and right before the pandemic, we were recruiting about 5,000 donors per year. Um, and the majority from diverse ancestral groups, like, you know, majority non-Caucasian and majority male donors as well, um, which is important um, because they're associated with better outcomes for patients. And so, you know, it's been a journey uh, over the past 10 years. And, and you know, I'm, I'm excited with how far we've come. Obviously, the pandemic has been has thrown a huge wrench and, gosh, everything, everything, not just donor recruitment, but, gosh, the whole world. Um, but, you know, we've transitioned to supporting virtual donor recruitment. It's a work in progress, but I'm proud of how far we've come and, you know, where we're heading. Um, so, you know. Uh, I think that's amazing. I think the fact that you have had, like, such a great impact on a great thing that actually, like, helps people survive, you know? I think it's really great to even come out and go to universities and help spread the knowledge and get university students to donate. I think that's amazing. So... Going on to the next question, I think really relates to what you just said. Why don't you talk like a little bit about the registration process and why we need to swab? Absolutely. It's a good question. So um, in order to sign up as a stem cell donor right now in the sort of pandemic era, the option that's available is to sign up online via blood.ca. And I think, I think some folks in our, will put this in the chat or, or below the podcast, etc. how to sign up or what the link is to sign up. Um, but that will be available uh, for those who are listening and, and, and watching on, on the website and so on after. But, but um, you know, you go to the website and, and you fill out, you have to um, know what you're signing up for. So we have a, a short quiz. They ask you just some general questions about dental donation that you, you, re, you read the text, you answer the questions. It's not like a part, it's not an exam or anything. It's just, you just know what you're signing up for. And, and then um, uh, you fill out your health information. You know, you've got to be, the criteria to sign up as a stem cell donor is that you're seven, age of 17 to 35. Um, in good general health, willing to help anyone in need anywhere in the world, um, and that you have health care coverage in Canada. Um, so, so you know, for example, OHIP for Ontario or other provincial health coverage. And, and um, so, so you, you answer that information and you answer some questions about your medical history so that they're aware, you know, in more detail that you're in good general health um, and you list any, any questions that are comments that you have about your health there. Uh, and then uh, after filling that out, they mail you a swab kit. Uh, which then you know, it arrives some weeks later, and then you swab your cheeks. So sort of it comes with four swabs, and you, you take the swab and put it in your mouth, and you just brush your cheek, 
for sort of uh, 20 to 30 seconds, and then you put it sort of in the envelope, in the little slot, in the little cardboard slot in the envelope, and then you do that four times for different areas of your of your mouth or your cheeks that you're swabbing, and, and there's a sort of picture that you follow, it tells you how to swab. Um, and the reason why we do the swabbing, um, or why we get the, the donors to swab, is we're, we're asking from them a DNA sample, because that DNA sample is then tested in, in the Canadian Blood Services labs to see what, okay, what are the HLA markers that that potential donor has and how does that compare to, first of all, the patients that are currently searching for a match um, that don't have one, but also in the future. Because when you sign up, you're signing up to, to lifelong commitment. You can certainly back out at any time. And there's never any obligation to go through with donation if you are a match, although I hope that people sign up with, with the intention that they would. Um, there's never any, this isn't a contract to sign up. It's, it's you know, it's, a, this is always an act of altruism, but, but, uh, you know, the, the idea is that you're on the database until age 60 and you could be a match to someone in five years and three years and seven years, or frankly, the majority of people that sign up are not a match to anyone at all. You know, in Canada, across the nation, as I said, there are 460,000 people signed up as donors and we only do about 300, like only about 300 of them go on to donate their stem cells every year. Um, so that's a very small fraction of our registry that ends up being don donors. And I mean, um, you know, it's just similar around the world. I mean, there's 38 million people around the world who register as donors. Vast, vast, vast majority of them are not ever going to donate stem cells. But a small fraction will, and they'll have the opportunity to save a life. And also to save a life that no one else could potentially, that they might be the only match in the world for that patient, which is something that um, is really unique to this kind of a program. You know, I mean, blood donation is extremely important. It's vital. It's, you know, you're, it's heroic. Um, you know, you have to match with blood donation, blood typing. You know, the blood group has to be the same between the donor and the recipient and so on. And the blood bank puts that out. Um, but there's only a certain number of blood types. But with the stem cell donation matching, gosh, there's thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of different combinations of HLA markers. And and, 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 and as the world gets more diverse and as people from different countries and different nationalities and different ancestral groups are sort of uh, coming together and, and you know, the world's getting more diverse and, and you know, people from mixed race, ancestry, et cetera, uh, may have uh, unique uh, new combinations of HLA markers that didn't exist before. And, and they may be donors that, uh, for patients that otherwise wouldn't have a match and, and it may be hard for them specifically to find a match if they were anyone got you know hopefully they would they never will gosh i don't wish anyone to have a disease where they need a bone marrow transplant but you know the idea that diverse people um you know themselves are less likely to find a match if they were to need one for a stem cell transplant mm -hmm. so let's say i do the swabbing and then the canadian blood services they reach out to me and say that okay we found like a potential match for you. Like what happens after this registration and swabbing process? Happy to answer that as well. And it's, an import it's important that people have an idea of sort of what lies ahead if they were to be a match at the time that they sign up. I completely agree. So what happens is that a, sort of a nurse or staff member connects with you, uh, confirms that you're interested in, 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 in the process. You know, some people, when they get the call, either they, you know, they, they, some people back out and, and it breaks my heart, but, you know, they have absolutely the right to do that because, again, there's no obligation with this pro pro process and everyone always has the right to withdraw. But, you know, I always wish that people sort of um, understand the program well and really would consider signing up as a donor if they're on the registry. Um, uh, so, so. Uh, they are, are given more information in detail about the process ahead. 
the, the potential donor that's gotten the call would go, will undergo health screening. So they meet with the physician, they make sure they're healthy, they make sure there's no medical problems that would impact, first of all, on the patient, but also on the donor themselves. If the donor's got a health problem that makes them higher risk to donate, then you know, the donor's health is, is, is not ever put in jeopardy. And there's a physician that's assigned just for the donor um, that doesn't, is not involved in the patient's care that focuses on the safety exclusively of the donor. Uh, and this is a very safe process, the donation, and I'll talk about that in a second. And then also the, you know, the, the donor gives some blood work just to, to make sure that there's no, you know, from an infectious disease perspective, from, you know, re rechecking the, the matching again in more detail uh, to verify and so on. And then, and then, you know, if the, if the donor clears and is willing, they go through the donation process. There are two ways that stem cells are donated or collected. And by and far, the most common way is in a process that's a lot like blood donation. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, that, that stem cells are most of the time collected via blood. And so what happens is the donor actually gets an injection of a special growth factor um, called GCSF, or granulocyte colony stimulating factor. And they get that injection about a week or five days or so leading up to the transplant. They get it every day. Uh, and that moves their stem cells, mo mobilizes their stem cells from the bone marrow into their bloodstream um, so that it can be collected more easily. And then on the day of the collection, the donor comes in and uh, they're hooked up to, a, so, uh, to an IV or a line which goes into their vein and, and, and blood is collected from, from their arm and it's filtered into a filtering machine which filters the stem cells from their blood and then sort of takes the remainder of their blood and returns it back to the donor. And so blood is coming out of one arm filtered through this filtering machine uh, called an, an apheresis machine and then returned back to their arm or to their other arm. And so it's kind of like a circuit or a cycle where blood is coming out and being filtered and coming back in. And the donor is sitting in the chair for four to six hours and they're reading a book or they're on their phone or they're talking with friends or, you know, they're relaxed. It's, I mean, it's a long day. It's, it's not uncomfortable. Um, obviously, there has to be an IV placed. Um, and for those people who have, um, who don't have very good veins, sometimes they need sort of a special line to be placed that just allows access to do this. But, you know, the actual day of the donation is very uneventful. Um, it's just long, you know, four or six hours you're sitting there, you're on your phone, whatever. Um, and then at the end, you, you walk out and um, there's a small bag of stem cells that's been collected that then goes to help uh, save the life of a patient in need. And, and, and it's as simple as that. Uh, a minority of the time, so less than 10% of the time, um, donors might be asked to donate stem cells from bone marrow. This is a procedure that's done under general sedation. So the, the donor is put to sleep and, and, and a needle goes into the side of the hip. Um, and, and, and about half a liter to a liter of bone marrow is, is, is collected from the donor. Um, and and um, again, the donor, it's a day procedure, so the donor generally doesn't have to stay in hospital, gets up and goes home. And, and you know, for young, healthy people, it's a, it's a, a relatively quick recovery. Um, so, you know, they say after the procedure, there's pain comparable to having fallen on ice in the side of the hip, which lasts generally for a couple of days and can be treated with Tylenol. Again, I, I never would say that this is nothing. This is an act of altruism, um, and certainly it's, it's mildly uh, it's uncomfortable, but, but it's, it's safe. It's safe, and, and the odds of, of a, a problem happening are extremely low, and, and that's, you know, verified uh, by the physician. You know, we only select people that are healthy to do this. You know, the, the main risk of the, you know, uh, that's worth commenting of the, of the bone marrow transplantation procedure is a one in a hundred thousand chance of a serious reaction to the uh, anesthetic that's used to put the donor to sleep. That's the most serious risk related to bone marrow donation, one in a hundred thousand uh, risk of allergy to anesthetic. I mean, you know, while 
some soreness at the site of the collection is common. Um, it's, it, it goes away uh, for most people entirely within days to, to sort of um, on the order of one to two weeks after transplant, particularly for those young and healthy people, uh, sorry, after the donation I meant. So, so those are the two ways that stem cells are, are collected. And I said the blood donation method is much more common um, and, and generally it's preferred by the, the, the donors. The, the, the growth factor that they have to get um, it's the same growth factor, this GCSF, that our own bodies make when we need to make blood. If we were to sort of get into an accident, God forbid, and if we were to have be bleeding or to be sick with an illness and we need more blood, the, this is a hormone that our body makes already um, to sort of boost uh, the immune cells and to boost the stem cells. But of course, we're giving it a, a bunch extra to the donors on purpose um, so that they, their stem cells can move from their bone marrow into their bloodstream um, to facilitate the collection. And giving this growth factor is associated with some flu-like symptoms and some bony aches. And that, that's how we know that it's working because the, as the stem cells, say, are moving from the bone marrow into the bloodstream, there's going to be some bony aches. Again, generally very mild, generally confused with the Tylenol, always temporary, not never dangerous uh, from that perspective. And so very safe. So, so, so this is the, sort of the ask uh, of the donor if they're found to be a match. And again, they're, they're doing this procedure, a very reasonable ask. Uh, it's not nothing, though it's an act of altruism and, and they're heroic for doing it. And they're saving a life and also the life that, that no one else potentially could save, um, which is extremely powerful. So I'm curious to know if after I donate stem cells, if I can track who they're going to, where they're going, or even if there's a predetermined person or receiver that's already decided when I'm donating my stem cells. So no one has ever asked to donate their stem cells from blood or bone marrow uh, ever, unless it's already going or would go to a very specific patient in need at that moment in time. Um, so you know, would never donate and just, uh, just in case it would be needed, it would be you're donating because if you agree, then the patient will be admitted to hospital and will then receive your stem cells literally, you know, one week after your donation. And, and there's international, in the, in the case of the donor uh, and the patient being across borders or across provinces or whoever, there's definitely a lot of coordination that goes on. Um, and I've got lots of stories there, but how I had, you know, imagine stem cells crossing international borders. I mean, it's like a biological process, you know, a product, um, you know, and then major cataclysmic events of the world, like the pandemic, like imagine how difficult it has been to coordinate the, the, the donation of stem cells from one country, a patient in one country, a donor in one country to a patient in another, when air, airlines across the world have been shut down and, and routes canceled and the chaos of travel. I mean, it's, not, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Herculean ordeal, but it, it happened. It continued because, you know, patients' lives depend on these, on these uh, life-saving products. But, but um, you're, you, you know, your question related to, will I know who I'm donating to? The answer is that at the time of donation, you don't know who you're donating to. That's on purpose. The donor and the patient remain anonymous to each other uh, on purpose to protect both the donor and the patient. Um, and, and so you have to be willing to donate to anyone in need of any creed, of any nationality, of any age group, etc. You don't know who you're donating to. Now, uh, between one to two years after the donation, depending on the country of origin of the patient, etc., if both the patient and the donor agree, then the registry will help exchange their information that they can meet to connect with each other. And so, you know, um, I run this library of stories in stem cell donation called uh, Why We Swab. You can find it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, Why We Swab, one word. And um, we share a number of beautiful donor-recipient stories 
where you know the donor and recipient connect uh, one to two years after the donation, and it's 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 generally this uplifting and 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 it brings tears tears to my eyes thinking about it. You know, um, we have one story of of uh, of a man who had a particular kind of blood cancer, chronic myelogenous leukemia, and we sort of tell his donor story across six social media posts where he's being diagnosed in the first post um, with his blood cancer. And then at the same time, um, we have a second post from the donor who's then uh, signing up on Facebook, actually, because I had heard about donation on Facebook and wanted to sign up to help. And then, you know, we have a, a story post about the patient receiving the stem cells and about the donor, another post about the donor donating the stem cells, and then about the two connecting and, and what it meant to them to meet each other. And then the, the patient speaking at the donor's wedding. And I mean, this is just like, you know, um, th th their connection on an emotional plane is just, you can't they become as though, as family, they become, I mean, it's just so powerful um, to, to be a part of someone's life that you saved and vice versa. I mean, again, not every, not every patient is comfortable, not every donor is comfortable uh, to connect. And there are cases where the information was exchanged, but, you know, some people in our story library share with us that, you know, they weren't sure it was their place to reach out to this person's life that they helped or vice versa. But, you know, they're always in their thoughts, they're always in their minds, you know, there's uh, a storyteller in our library who tells us, quote, that, you know, she goes hiking a lot post-transplant, having recovered from the transplant, and she takes her donor with her literally everywhere. I mean, literally, the donor is inside of her in terms of the, 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 blood, the blood of the donor, you know, that's circulating in her veins. Um, and, and, you know, that's really meaningful. It's like this, you know, with this blood that, that, that I climbed this mountain, I went on this hike, and, you know, um, heartfelt uh, stories. So, so, but again, there's no expectation that you would meet necessarily. Um, so you, you have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really heartwarming, honestly. Like it, just learning more about it makes me want to go and register. It's, it's really good to know that you can make such a difference in somebody's life. And then like speaking at the wedding, it's such like an emotional thing. So, you know, you're literally changing multiple people's lives, the, the recipient, their loved ones. It's an amazing thing. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, stories routine, I mean, I, I help arrange the story library. The stories routinely bring me to tears. I mean, there's a story, uh, for example, from um, a donor who at time that he was called that he was a match to someone in need somewhere in the world, he was dealing with mental health issues himself. He was going through cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety. He was having panic attacks. He was on medication. He got this call. He's like, there's someone on the other line that needs your help. You know what I mean? Some patient in need. And it's like, well, he's like, well, I've got my issues that I'm dealing with, but here I am with the opportunity to save someone's life. How could I say no? Um, and, and he went through with the donation and it did well. And, and you know, I, I just, some of these stories are just, he can do it. And, and we, have, we have the story of a donor, a young man from Eastern Canada, uh, Ian. And um, he's a young man and he sort of shares the young man's perspective on donation. And he describes his donation experience as, quote, not too hospitally. Uh, which I thought was very funny. And then he described also sharing his donation experience with some of his peers, talking about what he did and what it meant. And they were like, holy shit, you did that? And, and like, I think that also is kind of like, that's kind of what young men would sort of do when they hear that someone did that for someone else. Like, it's like, wow. The McMaster Stem Cell Club is right now working on, on a video with a donor as well. And, and he has similar stories he shared of his donation experience to others. And they just were so impressed with the work. Like, it just, it's just, it's heroic, right? And, and I think universally it's seen as heroic. And, and it's, you know, it, it takes some time. And it's, you know, there can be mild side effects, but it's very safe. But, you know, it, um, it's overwhelming. And, and I think that's the, that's the experience of the donors who go through it in a positive way. 
uh, positively over, you know, it's just so meaningful to be able to do something like this. Those are really heartwarming stories. Thank you so much for sharing. I didn't know that like, as somebody who like directs this club, you also get the stories and you also publish them. That's actually a really interesting fact. I want to look into those more. But um, why don't we move on to the racial disparities in the stem cell registry? So what are some current challenges facing the stem cell registry and the stem cell club? Oh, yes. So, I mean, in terms of challenges, I mean, right now, all of our in-person, we normally run drives at campuses across Canada. All of our in-person events are all shut down, just like the campus life is shut down. And so we have a huge problem there in terms of recruiting. And we've shifted all of our recruitment focus to online. It's an entire, I mean, we did some, you know, we, the, the why we swab library of stories existed and predated the pandemic. We have some whiteboard videos that I'm very proud of that we put together that are very helpful to educate people about the central nation. And we made those before the pandemic. But, you know, when the pandemic hit, it's like, well, we need to really, really focus on the online recruitment. How do we do that? And so we started making TikToks. Um, and McMaster's made a number, but all the other chapters across Canada have been making a number, too. And again, I mean, I never really heard of TikTok in, in, seriously before the pandemic, and now I'm a huge fan. And I was thinking, you know, we've got to use TikTok to start engaging the youth and the young adults where they're at, you know, particularly diverse people. A lot of people use TikTok. And, and even if they don't use it, they certainly enjoy the videos if they're showing them. I mean, that's a universal phenomenon. And so, so you know, I, I, I motivated all the teams to start making them. Um, and the TikToks that we've developed are just high quality and entertaining and, and educational and, and, and meaningful. And, and, you know, many of them focus on the, you know, the ethnic racial disparity also in, in available uh, donors and in the matching. Um, you know, as I said, people are more likely to find a match within their own ethnic groups. And, you know, as I said at the start of this program, majority of Caucasian, not all, but the majority of Caucasian patients can find a match. Um, like 75%, but for certain ethnic groups, people who are of Black, African, Black, Caribbean ancestry, it's as low as 15 to 20% finding a match. Um, and it's like, okay, well, what happens if they can't find a match? Well, that's not good. Um, there are other options. There are other options for those patients. For example, um, the, the technology and our skill in transplant has advanced to the point that we can do half-matched transplants safely. So by definition, for example, a, ch a child and a parent are half matched by definition because they get half the DNA from mom, half from dad. And so then a child to their mom is like a half match because half of the DNA from the child came from the father. Or between two siblings, there's a one in two chance that they're at least a half match. And then, or one in two chance that they're a half match, one in four chance that they're a full match, and a one in four chance that they're not a match at all, just from the genetics. Uh, we can do half match transplant safely. Uh, it's not the preferred option, but it's acceptable. And then um, there's also cord blood transplantation where stem cells that are donated from baby umbilical cord at time of delivery are then frozen. And they're the same kind of stem cells that can be collected from adults, but these ones are frozen in a sort of uh, a bank, uh, Canada's public cord blood bank and similar such banks around the world. And, and these stem cells can be used also to help patients in these situations. Um, but still there are gonna be patients without any of these options available to them. Um, and those patients, you know, may not survive, right? There's no curative option for their disease. Um, and so um, that's heart-wrenching. And, you know, it's more likely to happen in people of non-Caucasian ancestry. I give, I give the example of people of Black ancestry, but the same is true for people of, of, of Chinese ancestry or, or um, South Asian, Southeast Asian ancestry. Indigenous peoples um, have a heritage that's unique to North America. And so there aren't that many Indigenous peoples that are registered as donors in Canada. But beyond that, like if you look to the registries around the world, I mean, there are not going to be people with the sort of unique genetic heritage of the Indigenous peoples of Canada on the registries and other parts 
world necessarily. I mean, there are people of, of North America. And so, um, you know, um, we have to do the best we can to get as many people from diverse ancestral groups to sign up as donors. So I think it's pretty obvious why we need to have an ethnically diverse registry. But why don't you um, kind of explain to us how we can overcome the issue of not having ethnically diverse donors? Absolutely. I mean, right now, Stem Cell Club is working to run national campaigns to engage specific ethnic demographics as donors. For example, this coming February, we're going to be running a campaign um, during Black History Month to engage people who identify as Black, Black people, Black Caribbean, uh, Black African ancestry people, uh, just not as donors. I think it's the beginning of, of a, a range of such campaigns focused on the recruitment of specific ethnic groups. I mean, with our story library, we, we try and tell wherever possible, wherever we have access to tell the stories of people who are uh, impacted by stem cell donation, uh, by their donors or recipients, et cetera, who are from diverse ancestries and ethnic racial groups. I think, you know, the TikToks that we develop, we try and start, you know, try and focus on the, we developed a number actually that are very both entertaining and, and educational and engaging that it, just, you only have 10 to 20 seconds in a TikTok, get, get the message across that there's a need for ethnic donors in, in a really sort of fun way. Um, but, but in a way that's also likely to sort of go viral or to be shared and to, to get the message across in, in a way that's accessible for, for the young adults that, that we need to get this message too. And so, you know, the work is ongoing. You know, over the past 10 years, Canada's registry has become more diverse, certainly. Right now, it's 70% Caucasian, but it was not, it was, it was much less, uh, well, much more Caucasian, um, say, uh, 10 years ago, and we're making progress, but it's slow, and, and the work it needs to continue, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, it's a work in progress, and we, the work continues. So, Warren, I know you touched on this a little in the beginning, but why don't we go into more detail on how the pandemic influenced the recruitment and donation process and how can the stem cell adapt to virtual platforms? Right. So, you know, as I said, we're focusing on virtual donor recruitment right now because we can't run any in-person drives. So people sign up on, online. Uh, we, we promote people to sign up online, to fill the form, the paperwork online and then uh, at, at blood.ca. And then they get mailed a swab kit, they mail it back, and then they're on the registry. Now, I would say it's a big jump to go from, say, watching a, an engaging TikTok telling people to save a life as a stem cell donor, even in a high-quality one. It's a big jump to sort of go from there to signing up and making a lifelong commitment to be a donor and a committed one and understanding the process. I mean, that's a big jump. It's a big ask. Um, but so what we put together, we started putting together, is these virtual campaigns featuring TikToks to capture people's attention, videos to explain stem cell donation, podcasts and other media such as this to help explain and we have whiteboard views to help explain also we have infographics which explain the the principles of simple donation and the donation process and so on we put these all together and we post them and we get we partner with clubs and other groups to share this information to their members and so on uh, i mean a team at university of alberta did this beautifully and they actually their drive was recently covered by cp news edmonton live and i think you know there's there's a, there's a team in london that's connected with cbc news london also to and again the the, the media reporting on this i mean their help is, is of immense value in getting the word out to sort of general Canadians, but also it speaks to the importance of our mission, um, which remains important even during the pandemic, but, you know, getting the word out to the, to the young adults is a challenge. What's been interesting about the pandemic, though, is that, you know, you're developing all these skills and engaging people online. And when the pandemic ends, and it will, oh gosh, it's going to end. It just will take some time, but we're getting, we'll get there, you know. Uh, but when it ends, like these skills that we've developed as an organization will become, will continue to be relevant. I mean, we'll return to the in-person recruitment on campuses across Canada as we had before the pandemic. But at the same time, the skills that we developed um, 
making these TikToks, making, doing virtual campaigns. I mean, we're going to keep that up and we're going to continue it. And so, you know, uh, the pandemic, you know, it's not a good thing, the pandemic, but it, it did drive innovation in this area, you know, the online innovation, even this podcast, you know, broadcast on Zoom, et cetera. I think, you know, I mean, there would be events like this before the pandemic, but I think everyone is becoming more used to these kinds of, of events that, that connect people across distances virtually. And, and I think that's very meaningful. Right. Well, Dr. Warren, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time and explaining to us just the process of stem cell donation and stem cell transplantation. I think it was so useful, specifically because I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. So now that we can broadcast it to so many people who are also curious and didn't know before, and now maybe, and of course, this is a way to recruit new people too. So I just think that's wonderful for your club and our club. It was a great thing that we got to connect. Um, I wanted to thank everyone for listening. Follow Sci Section on Instagram. Also follow McMaster's Stem Cell Club, all the Stem Cell Clubs. I'm going to link your TikTok, whatever else you want me to link. I'm going to link it. We need to get these recruitments happening. But again, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me.